You're listening to Cleveland First Baptist Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Rick Dill. For more information, please visit clevelandfirstbaptistchurch.com. So, last week we examined Paul's argument that, uh, concluding that we're all guilty under the law, as you recall. Uh, All of us are lawbreakers and All of us deserve the punishment for sin, which is, of course, death. Paul concluded the argument that we looked at with verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Uh, If that were the end of the discussion, we could all just go and jump off a bridge. That'd be the end of that. Uh, We can't be... uh, helped in any way, but that isn't the case. And we ended the study last night by looking at verse 21 or last week, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. So this is the theme of the next section of the letter, uh, the one that we want to look at tonight. So how can we be made right with God? That is the question that Paul asks. Uh, and the theological word is, of course, to be justified uh, without keeping the law. We're not justified by doing what the law says, but we're actually justified even though we can't keep the law. And there are really three things that we need to keep in mind as we just go verse by verse through this section of the book of Romans. First of all, God's intent with the law is to show us what we have to be in order to live with him, with a holy God, to be made right with God. We must be like him. He is holy and we're to be holy, Um, just like we were created. We were created in his image. We were created to be a part of his fellowship, and, um, but that was all lost. So the law shows us what that means and how it looks to be holy as God is holy. Then he says, but now. All right, so he has just spent all that time making clear that everyone, Jew and Gentile, is uh, judged guilty under the law. That is the purpose of the law. And then he says, but now. And that sort of divides all of history into two parts, life under the law and life under grace through Christ. And... This is really no surprise. It was foretold by the prophets, he says. For example, Psalms 32.1 says, Oh, what a joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. So David was looking forward to the time when God would do that. He would put our sin out of sight. We would find forgiveness. So, um... Let's just begin now by looking verse for verse. We're going to just go through this section, and we'll go from verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 3. So first of all, he says, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. So he says we are made right through faith. Okay? Um, Made right is, of course, the word righteous. We're made righteous, which simply means right. If a person is uh, righteous in his behavior, it has nothing to do with being 
self-righteous, a goody-two-shoes. It, it simply means doing what is right in God's eyes. So we, we can't do that because we can't obey the law. But God makes us righteous through our faith when we place our faith in Christ. So now we've talked a hundred times about this very important word, faith. Uh, the noun is pistis, and it means, uh, it, or it requires an understanding of and an affirmation of the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it is never meant as simple affirmation of certain religious truths. It is an affirmation that changes life and redirects the way we live. So you have James, for example, saying, uh, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? So that's not that, that faith and, and works are in any way a contradiction. That simply means that a genuine faith will reflect itself in the way we live, in our actions. Then you have the verb form of the very same word used in this sentence uh, as believe. So to believe is to place your trust in someone or something. In this case, it is in the person of Jesus Christ and the good news that he preached and the fulfillment of the promises of God for our salvation through uh, his sacrifice on the cross. So, um, you know, we are faith and belief and it can be translated trust, all the same word in the Greek and one of the most important words that, that we find. And he says, it applies to everyone, no matter who we are, no matter who we are. So this is what Paul has been talking about all along. Everyone can believe, Jew and Gentile alike. It makes no difference. So there's not ever anyone who is outside the scope of the grace of Christ. There is not anyone who uh, it, it can't, can't, and isn't wanted by God. God desires that everyone come to faith in Christ. And then verse 23, he says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Uh, you might have a translation that says, fall short of the glory of God, which is this verse that is so very, very uh, well known uh, to us. It's the verse that uh, we very often use. Actually, I always use it when I'm talking to somebody who has questions about faith and is desiring to follow Christ. Uh, it's important for a number of ways. First of all, he says it applies to everyone. Uh, all men, Jew and Gentile, but Paul goes further to say that the really the entire creation longs for redemption, not in this verse, but in another verse in the book of Romans. Uh, he applies that everyone is not, it's not just us, it's not just people, but all of God's creation desires the time when Christ renews the creation. Um, the whole creation has fallen short. Uh, you know, lots of people in, in our present situation, um, they, would, they would ask the question, so why does God allow something like the coronavirus even uh, to happen? And really the answer to that is that it has nothing to do with God allowing. It has to do with man's rebellion. 
the, the, the creation, the world, it's not the perfect world that God created. It's the world that is rebelled against God. And so we live in a world that isn't perfect, where it's a broken world. Now, you know, of course, we have the promise, and this is so important to us, especially in a situation like this. Jesus is going to return, and Jesus is going to bring the new heaven and the new earth. It won't always be like this, thank goodness. So he says, for everyone has, has sinned. So hamartia, the Greek word, it simply means to miss the target or to miss the goal. So, you know, you remember that it has to do with the vocabulary of the archer. You've heard that a thousand times, and, and that's still a, a good way to understand the word. An arrow that doesn't hit the target that the archer intended for it it misses the mark, it falls short. Uh, you said in Jesus' day that the arrow had sinned. So um, it really is the arrow is not doing what the arrow was created to do. And that describes us perfectly. We were created for something that, that we cannot, uh, cannot reach. We can't hit the target. Um, and we need to remember, too, that sin is is always in the scripture when when you relate to sin or when you talk about sin it's really sin is always against god so you might sin by hurting your neighbor but the heart of sin is not against your neighbor it is against god himself because it, it, it's his standard that's exactly what makes sin sin if if god hadn't given us the standard of his holiness when he created us, then there wouldn't be sin in that sense. So um, we need to remember that. Um, sin is, is always a fracture of God's law and, and who God is himself. So uh, we fall short, um, the meaning of the word sin, we fall short of the target, and that is God's glorious standard or, or the glory of God. So... Let's think about that just a moment. Glory is, is a word that is used to describe God's presence. So you have um, when God descends on Mount Sinai, you're, we're told that the, the glory of God came down upon the mountain like a cloud and with lightning and thunder. Or when, when God filled the temple, his presence filled the temple, and what the scripture says is that the glory of God filled the temple. In fact, everybody had to leave. They couldn't, they couldn't stay in the presence of God. So sin is against the glory of God. The target for us was to be a part of God's glory. So sin is the failure uh, on man's part to be what God called us to be, and that is a part of uh, the glory of God, which is described in the law. That's what the law tells us. It tells us what God looks like, how God would react, and how he is, what he's like. So the heart of sin um, comes when we refuse to, to be what God wants us to be. So let's just think about that a moment. Um, you remember, of course, the Garden of Eden and when Adam and Eve are tempted, uh, Satan, of course, lies and said, you know, you're not, you're not going to die. And, uh, and he, he says something very important. He says, you know, 
Adam and Eve, the, the problem is God knows that if you do eat of this, the fruit, if you do sin, if you do rebel against him, uh, then, you know, that just, he knows that you will be like God yourself. You will be your own gods. You won't need him anymore. So the very heart of, of sin is that desire in our hearts not to be a part of God's glory, not to hit the target, but to be our own gods. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, Adam and Eve were wrong. Uh, God was right because they died. Um, all right, look at verse 24. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. So grace, the word charis in Greek, describes a, a goodness shown without someone deserving it and without any kind of remuneration. I, I can't purchase grace. If, if I have to purchase it, then it isn't grace at all. Uh, charis is always given out of goodness and freely from the hand of the giver. So uh, anytime I just do something out of the goodness of my heart, then you could use the Greek word grace to describe that. Uh, if, if I require repayment, then that isn't grace at all, you know. So we just, we just need to remember that. Uh, grace, uh, yet God in his grace, he says, freely makes us right in his sight. So when he says makes us right, that simply means that we are, we are justified. So let's think about that just a minute. Uh, you probably have a translation that uses the word justified. Paul uses this word 27 times. Um, normally it is translated justified twice. It is translated declared righteous. So to be justified has, has really two sides. It has a negative side and a positive side. The, the negative side is that we are declared by God to be not guilty. All right, so it has to do, do with guilt and the freedom from that guilt. But on the positive side of justification, we are declared to be in right relationship, or, or we are declared righteous. We are made righteous. So uh, it, it's important, I think, to, to think about the difference in those two things. For one, you know, it, it would be, one thing uh, in, in a court of law for us to be declared not guilty. All right? Uh, I, I think right off of <coughs> a case that I heard about several years ago where a, a criminal very obviously guilty, but, you know, because of a technicality, he was declared not guilty. But he was not declared righteous. He was not made righteous. And that is something way, way beyond just being not guilty. And so God desires through his grace not just to declare us not guilty, but to go much further and, and to make us right with him. You know, 
that's, that's a wonderful thing. And this happens through Jesus Christ. So God will declare all of those who put their trust in Jesus to be in right relationship with him. This, however, is only because the penalty for sin is paid by Jesus himself. All right, now, then he uses the word. He, he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Uh, it's the word redeemed. You probably know the, the Greek word means to be paid for and to be freed through the payment of a ransom it was a word from the slave market. Uh, Jesus is himself the ransom, ransom money through which our freedom from the penalty of sin is paid. All right, so you got to get this picture. We are guilty, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The, the, the wages of sin is what? It's death. So we're on death row. All right, the only thing that can save us is someone else pays the price. And that's what Jesus does for us. Um, the penalty for sin, Paul says, was death. And we need to think about that too. Um, you know, what, what do we think of normally when we think of uh, death? We think of physical death. And, and that is most definitely the case. Um, you know, man was not created to die. We, we are so accustomed to death, my goodness. Uh, how many died today of that crazy virus? Probably over 2,000. Um, you know, um, death has become for us so, we're so accustomed to it. But death is not a part of life. Death is the enemy of life. Death is only here, not because God created it, because we rebelled because of sin. And we need to always keep that in mind. Um, death is our enemy. And Jesus came to defeat death, physical death, just like we talked about on Sunday. But there is also spiritual death. And spiritual death doesn't take place just when we die, when we come to the judgment. That's sort of the conclusion of spiritual death. But spiritual death is what we are in now if we are without Christ. You know, Paul, uh, writing to one of the churches, said, you were dead in sin and now you're alive in Christ. He wasn't talking to people who had already physically died and been resurrected. He was talking to people who had not yet died, and he said, you're already dead because you don't know Jesus because that is the penalty of sin, and, and that takes place when I sin, right then. All right, so look at verse 25. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. Wow. Uh, there's a lot in that verse. Um, first of all, he says God presented Jesus as the sacrifice. That is, of course, a, a picture of the priest who had the responsibility of presenting the sin sacrifice to God in the temple. <coughs> it is God himself who brought the sacrifice, his own son. And he says, presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. So the Greek phrase is the sacrifice for atonement. It was um, a, a blood sacrifice. 
And, um, you know, later he says, by shedding his own blood. It was the blood was the life. Um, and so when the animal was sacrificed, when he lost his life, that was, oh, you hear our dog? Oh, she, he's, she's after the cat. <laughs> it was the uh, life of the animal that was to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Our dog may be very close to that right now. I'm not sure. So uh, let's, let's just talk about this a minute because it, it is really important. Um, recently, somebody asked me, so, so why couldn't God just say, oh, forget it. You know, just forget it. You know, your sin, it doesn't matter about the sin. Just, just forget it. Well, God is just, and his justice would not be justice at all without wrath. So justice and wrath are two sides of the same coin. If God were not angry against sin, he would not be just. We are angry when we hear that someone who's innocent, an innocent person, has been in some way falsely accused or mistreated or whatever. But, you know, we're not righteous. We turn around and do the same thing. But God is completely righteous and completely just. Thus, his anger is righteous. That is, it is right and is part of his justice. And, and that requires the shedding of blood. So blood is, is always in the scripture a symbol of life. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn over to Leviticus 17, 11. I'm going to give you a second to do that. And it's a verse you probably ought to underline in, your, in the scripture. It, it's an important verse, and it has a great deal to do with the whole issue of atonement through Christ for us. Uh, it, it seems far away because it's dealing with an animal sacrifice, but this is what we read in Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the body is in its blood, I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, make, and this is the blood of an animal, making you right with the Lord. All right? It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible, that cleanses you, that makes you right before God. So when the animal's blood was shed for a person's sin, it was his life that was poured out on the altar. Life is sacred to God. God hated violence because it meant the shedding of blood, the loss of life. Isaiah said, the nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of, uh, the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression he expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard the cries of violence. Life is holy to God, and he hates violence. Sin required the shedding of blood, the loss of life. So Jesus shed his blood on the cross to pay for our sin. And then he says something interesting. He says, it shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. 
So what does that mean? Fair, it means he was justified in doing something when he didn't punish the sins of man prior to Jesus. He was waiting, knowing that he himself would pay the price for man's sin. So when we read the Old Testament and, and we read all of the regulations and instructions and all that has to do with the sacrificial system, and it's this massive amount, um, we have to remember that all of that was done as a temporary solution so that still relationship to God was possible in some way. But all of that would change. But God knew that he was sending the ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. And that's what we have. <coughs> so look at verse uh, 26. For he was looking ahead and including them, those who came before Christ, who were, were forgiven, who were not punished for their sin. Uh, rather, he took that sacrifice, that animal sacrifice, um, until Jesus could come and be the ultimate sacrifice. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time through Jesus. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. So the sins of God's people were punished symbolically in, in animal sacrifices, but they are punished once for all in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. This demonstrates how righteous God is even when he did not punish sinners that deserve that. Sinners are made right in God's eyes today and in retrospect uh, for those before Jesus through his sacrifice. And then Paul says, uh, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So there's no boasting. Uh, we, nobody is going to stand before God and say, let me, let me show you the things that, uh, that I have done. You know, if that's what I'm expecting, I'm in for a very uh, shocker, uh, a surprise. There is nothing for us to boast about because we are not redeemed in any way because of who we are or what we've done. We are not good. We have not earned our ransom money. It was a gift of God to us. Our acquittal, that is our being set free, is not based on our obedience, but rather on our faith faith that we trust in what God himself has done. So in verse 28 he says, we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. So when uh, Martin Luther translated this verse into German, he said through faith alone. Now the word alone is not actually in the Greek text, but it is uh, certainly consistent with the Greek meaning of the word. It means uh, only great, only faith, nothing else. If there were any addition there, any strings attached, then it would not be grace at all. If, if there were just one or two things that, you know, I've got to get this right, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, 
So you've been selected to receive free of charge, two days and two nights in a resort hotel in Orlando. Ever got that call? About a hundred times, right? Um, there's no charge at all, except that you have to listen to a 45-minute presentation one morning. Well, we have done that, and actually, the accommodations were fantastic. They were really worth the 45 minutes. That, of course, were not 45 minutes, but about four hours altogether. And uh, we had this really high-pressure salesman that was determined to sell us um, a uh, timeshare, which we knew we weren't going to buy. And, um, you know, we listened patiently and, you know, I just said, um, look, um, we're, <laughs> we're not going to buy a timeshare. You know, I mean, you can talk all day if you want. I mean, eventually I'll leave. But, um, you know, we're not going to buy a timeshare. We're not interested in that. We weren't interested when we came. We knew we weren't buying it. And he got uh, pretty irate with me and he said, well, what do you think we are? You know, we can't just hand out free hotel uh, accommodations to everybody who wants to, you know, who don't even intend to buy something or whatever, you know. And I said, well, let me just remind you that you called me and that you said this was a free gift. So what does that mean to you, free gift? It means no strings attached. So what are you doing? And pretty much ended the conversation there. But, you know, there are, it, it says through faith alone, there is nothing else. It is only through our trust in Christ that we can be saved. And then he says, after all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God and he makes people right with himself only by faith whether they are Jews or Gentiles. So Paul is uh, presenting a logical argument here. He's just argued that all have sinned, Jews and Gentile alike. But here he reminds us that the most important tenet, uh, reminds us of the most important tenet of the Jewish faith. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, he says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. There's only one God. So he says, if there is only one God, if what the Jews teach is true, then must he not also be the God of the Gentiles? I mean, because he's God, right? So he's God of everyone. And he says, the only way you can come to him, whether you're Jew or Gentile, is through faith in Christ. So verse 31 says, well then, if we emphasize faith, does that mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not, Paul says. All right, so this is where we kind of clash sometimes uh, because Paul says it is completely faith, but that doesn't nullify the law. Okay, there is a, a theological term for this, and it's called uh, antinomianism. And antinomianism means literally against the law. That's what it meant. And so Paul is anticipating that someone who's reading this letter is going to make this charge. Uh, they're going to accuse him of being someone who is against the law because he believes in salvation by faith. 
And he rejects that outright. He said, of course not. That is not true. Remember what the law is. It is a description of what it means to be holy as God is holy. We are to be holy because he is holy, even though it is God's sacrifice that saves us, not the law. Thus, we can believe in faith and still insist that the law is valid and good and that we should obey it. That doesn't mean that we're saved by it, but it does mean that it is still our direction. It's still our, uh, it, it is still who God is, and it's who we pattern our lives uh, by. It's what we pattern our lives by. Um, although we're not saved by that, by obeying that. Paul is going to talk about this more in Romans 13, so in a few weeks we'll get to that. Uh, in verses 8 to 10, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. So he said he doesn't say that you're saved by loving each other. He says because you are saved, then you fulfill the law, which is fulfilled in your relationship to other people. Okay, and then in verse 4, we read, Abraham was humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? So we may ask why Paul chooses Abraham as his example um, of faith. Because it was because the Jews used Abraham as an example of one who was chosen and saved because of his righteous works. So it was a common teaching at the time of Jesus and Paul that you know Abraham was placed on the pedestal as the one who really obeyed the law and thus was saved. Uh, I want to read a, a verse uh, from Ecclesiasticus, which is a part of the Apocrypha. So it's written between the two testaments. We don't accept that as scripture, but it's historically good and correct and uh, has a, a lot that would help us, but it helps us see how the Jew of that day would have been thinking. So in this verse, uh, it says, Abraham was a great father of many people. In, in glory, was there, there was none uh, like him. He kept the law of the Most High <laughs> and was in covenant with him. He established the covenant in his flesh and when he was proved, he was found faithful. All right, so the key there is who kept the law of the Most High. So Paul, knowing how the people of his day thought, he chooses Abraham, and he explains that, in, in fact, Abraham is not, he wasn't chosen because he kept the law, but the scripture says very clearly that he was chosen because he believed. Okay? If, uh, look, at, look at verse uh, 2. 
uh, this is, I think I said verse 4, that was actually verse 1 of chapter 4. In verse 2, he says, if his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about, Abraham. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous before his faith. So knowing how people were thinking about Abraham, Paul quotes instead Genesis 15, 6. And he says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. What is mentioned here of Abraham's good works that earned him his righteous standing with God? Nothing. It is pure and simply he put his faith in God. Abraham had kept no law, rendered no service, performed no ritual to earn credit, to, earn credit uh, to his account before God. His belief in God, who had made promises to him, and his faithful trusting in those promises was credited to him as righteousness. That's what, that's what the scripture says. In, in the same way, uh, as we trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, then we are made righteous. We are made right in right standing and right relationship to God. So I think it'd be good to summarize where we began with verse 22 because that kind of ties it together. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. So one, salvation is being made right with God. Uh, the problem of sin and estrangement from God is taken care of. We are restored. We are made right with him. Secondly, God has provided a sacrifice to save us, and that is his son, Jesus Christ. This was necessary because God is both just and he is holy, he is righteous. The wage of sin is death, so sin always brings death. God is just, the sin must be paid for. He is loving and offers the sacrifice himself. Thirdly, salvation is available to everyone. There is no one who cannot be saved. And finally, it is only through faith. The Greek word pistis, life-changing trust in Christ not through obedience to the law, since we are unable to obey the law. It is Jesus or nothing. What a great, even if it is a little deep, a great text tonight. Before I lead us in a word of prayer, I want to remind you, of course, of the service Sunday, and um, we will have um, Sunday school at the same time, thinking who is teaching Sunday? James. Who is it? James. James, that's right. James Sullivan is teaching Sunday. So it will be lesson five in your Sunday school book. Uh, don't forget to read ahead of time and prepare for that. Um, I know James will do a great job. Also, um, let me remind you, we, we have a number of families now in our community that we have been a part of helping and we've been in contact with the church and the church is, um, at the school, I mean, not the church, the school is uh, putting us in touch with those families, and next week we want to provide uh, a food box for them. 
So if you can be a part of that and would like to be a part of that, if you would um, just um, note that uh, on a check that it's for that and uh, send it to the church or if you, you know, let Wendy know if you do it online, that's okay too, however you choose to do it. Okay, let me say a word of prayer for us and uh, thank you for coming tonight. Lord, we just thank you for your word and Lord, we thank you that we are saved by by faith in you, that it is not our good works because we aren't good and our works are not good enough. Lord, but you were perfect and you were willing to die in our place and we just praise you for that wonderful, wonderful gift of grace. Help us to honor that and be faithful to you in all that we do, Lord. We love you and thank you for being with us tonight. Lord, we do pray for our country and our world in a very uh, critical time. Thank you, Father, that it appears that we are leveling off somewhat in the cases of the illness. And, Lord, um, we just ask for healing and your powerful hand to be guiding us, Lord. We just love you and praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.